0: All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're gonna study God's word. Genesis one is where we're gonna be. Guests who are with us this morning, it's a joy to have you here. It's a privilege to have you here. We're so thankful that we're here. We're gonna be walking through uh, Genesis one through 11 for these next several weeks. So we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to pick up where we were last week, or two weeks ago, and uh, continue forward. So I'm going to read the first 25 verses of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the water, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, to separate light from darkness and God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the kind of God who has spoken. That you are there and you are not silent. You reveal yourself in the pages of Scripture, And we pray that this self-revealing word would change our lives, would conform us more to the image of Christ, do wonderful things in the deep places of our lives, we pray as we look to you in Jesus' name, amen. So origin stories matter. And origin stories matter because origin stories, rightly told, truly told. They shape us in profound ways. I read a book last year uh, called Station Eleven. It came out back in 2014, national bestseller. And it it was the next book on my reading list. I didn't know anything about it. I just heard that people raved about it and that it was a well-told story and so forth. It ended up being a badly timed story for me. I just kind of chose it. But we were in the height of the pandemic and it's a book about a pandemic. Right on the very first page, 99% of the population's wiped out by a cataclysmic event. Right, and and what happens in the unfolding pages after it is, is you follow the story for about 20 years and there are a group of survivors, this very small band of survivors, and they, they make a city inside an old abandoned airport. And basically the book just asks the question, does, does music survive when the world is hanging by a thread? Does, does art survive in the new world after the apocalypse? Do you still have time for beauty when the world is barely hanging on, right? and so as you follow that 20 years of subsequent years after the event. You, children are born in that airport. They don't know what life was like before the apocalypse. They don't know anything. They don't know the old world at all. So there in the airport, there are people who would go out and they would scavenge and they would find things from the old world and they created a museum of relics inside the airport to help them make sense of the world that was before death swept through remember Moses' original audience, Israelites who had just been rescued from Egypt. Now they're wandering through a trackless waste of uninhabitable land in the Sinai desert. That's this people. They've been slaves for 450 years in Egypt and they had just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They don't know their origin story. And, and if Egypt knew their origin story, Egypt were, certainly wasn't going to tell them. And so in the kind providence of God he rescues them from Egypt and he says let me tell you a story let me tell you the story of how you began of how everything began let me tell you the story of how everything began who I am who your God is who you are why I made you how everything was mapped out from day one so the origin story of the world here in Genesis tells us who made everything and it tells us who we are Genesis 1, friends, so that it's not lost on us, the relevance is felt by us. Genesis 1 tells you that intuition that God has put inside you, that there's someone out there, and that that someone out there knows you, and he knows your name, and he designed you for a purpose and for a reason, and that intuitive sense that this God is a God of great power and majesty, he's over all things, and that... There's something beautiful about him because he's made these beautiful things that we see in the world. There's a Psalm that the people of God would sing for centuries in Psalm chapter 19 and it would say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims. The sky is preaching. And what's it preaching? The sky proclaims his majesty. Day after day pours forth speech. Night after night reveals Knowledge, the word gets out. The heavens are saying something and we're supposed to be listening. So look at the text with me and first consider, number one, creation begun. Creation begun. We'll look one more time at verse one, very briefly. Look with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And If you're taking notes, the first point here is this, the Bible unfolds one big story creation, fall, redemption, glory. So even the, the words in the beginning, the very first words in our Bible, they, they tip their hat to the end of the Bible. But we we saw this when we studied in the book of Revelation, the very last Sunday of uh, last year, where we saw that all these things that are materializing, all this imagery from the end of Revelation 21 and 22 reaches all the way back to the first page of the Bible. So so here we are at the beginning, and if you've read the end, you know these words in the beginning. They're filled with anticipation. There's a kind of kinetic energy buzzing underneath this in the beginning. You know this is going somewhere. Another thing we can notice in chapter one is Moses packs purpose into patterns and numbers. This purpose packed into the, the numbers and the patterns that are used here. Uh, there's an author named Irene Sun. Uh, she's a scholar, she, she studied literature at Yale University and then she studied theology at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And her husband's a pastor Pittsburgh Chinese Church And so they together, they they obviously love God's word, love the Old Testament, are steeped in the Old Testament. They name their their children, you know, Imet, which means faithfulness, and Yohanan, which means, you know, God is merciful. They've got all these rich names from the Old Testament. And she wrote a book for Yohanan. And she she writes a letter to him that you can read online. And she says in that letter to young Yohanan, she says, you know, your, your big brother, Imet, when he was little, when he was your age, she said, we used to always tell him the stories of the Bible every night and he just couldn't get enough. And we'd finish reading a Bible story, a kid's version of a Bible story and he would just say another one, another one. And so we read another one. And she said, but you were different. She said, every night we would read you a Bible story and once we would turn to page two, you would say the end, (laughs) you were not having it. You weren't feeling the stories. And she said, then we realized your passion was numbers. You were a number. She said, We were driving around one day and we noticed you kept pointing out every single number you saw. And you shouted from the back seat, you squealed from the back seat and said, Numbers are everywhere. And she said, That's when we realized numbers are our ticket in. So we started to tell you the stories of the Bible by telling you the numbers. And she wrote a book for Yohanan that you can read, you can buy it on Amazon and it's called, God Counts. And she said, so we sat down with you and we told you about five loaves and two fish, 100 sheep and one lost, six days and one to rest, three persons and one God. And Moses, he is using numbers and patterns very purposefully. So this phrase, and God said, Even while I was reading the text, you might've noticed that phrase gets repeated 10 times. Exactly, no more than 10, no less than 10. It's the drumbeat of the whole passage. There are seven let there be phrases. There are seven and it was so phrases. There are seven and it was good phrases. So there is purpose. There are tens and sevens and bundles of three. These are very intense. You don't write haiku by accident. You're counting. You don't write iambic pentameter by accident, you're counting. Moses didn't write these tens and sevens and threes by accident, he's counting. There's symbol-laden language even in the patterns that are underneath this story. Those seven let there bees, followed by seven and it was so followed by seven and it was good. There's a story in the numbers and we're supposed to see that. And what's the story in the numbers? The story is God's word is powerful. Every time all these perfect let there be's are followed by and it was so's. There's always fulfillment. His word always brings what he sends it to do. It doesn't return void. His word, God's word creates worlds. Friend, never forget that we, this whole world that we see was made by the word of God. It's an axiom of biblical faith. It's an article of Christian faith that God made the worlds by the word of his power. He made you by the word of his power. We are built by, created by the very word of God. We are sustained by the word of God. Jesus would say this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God, we're sustained by words spoken by the mouth of our God. Bruce Ware, a theologian at Southern Seminary, he would say never underestimate the seminal power of the word of God, meaning the life-creating power of God's word. You think about that for this year, for your life this week. If you want life springing forth, sounding like Genesis one, you need to be actively engaged in scripture. This is a basic application of the truth that's here. That's the message it's getting through. The first first verse of of Genesis chapter one is exactly seven words in Hebrew. Right, Moses is pulling out all the stops. He is, all the literary fireworks he can get his hands on, he's sending them up, right? It's very intentional crafting. It's history, it's what really happened, but it's laden with poetry. Most scholars believe that when God said, let there be light, God actually sung those words. That's why C.S. Lewis, when he writes his story, Chronicles of Narnia, and he represents the creation story, what does he have? He has Aslan the lion singing the worlds into motion. In Genesis one, we see creation created, second, creation prepared. So verse one is awesome because before verse one, get this, before verse one of Genesis chapter one, there was only the triune God. (laughs) That's it, the triune God goes into forever. Before there was time, there was the triune God. Then we have the words, in the beginning. So God creates in verse one, and then after that, verse two, you see it? Now the earth, so God has created something, verse one. Now the earth was without form and void. So in Hebrew, that phrase, without form and void, or it's, it's, it's the Hebrew words, two, two words back to back, tohu vavohu. And in other places of scripture where that phrase, tohu vavohu is used, if God speaks of a place as tohu vavohu, it means if you go there, you'll die. It means it is uninhabitable by man. You can't live in that environment. So, so verse one, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was tohu vavohu, it was uninhabitable So what does God do next? Verse three, and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters or hovering over the face of the deep. It's the same word used of an eagle hovering or fluttering over its nest. That's the imagery here. You ever seen nesting kick in, right? Kick in around the house. So wife finds out that she's pregnant and suddenly, five minutes later, she's hovering. Right? She, she's hovering over an empty space. She's, she's hovering over and she's got a tape measure and a plan, right? There, there's, there will be a theme. There will be paint, right? She is speaking it. The, things are gonna come into motion. Things are gonna be prepared and formed in this moment, right, the, the, the movement of the first creation is God is preparing, He's hovering, He's arranging, He's ordering, and then He's gonna bring people here. He's preparing a place for a people that he might dwell with them. God, if you will, is nesting. In Genesis chapter one, verse two and following. You see the progression. If you're taking notes, God creates everything, then orders and arranges it for us. Creates everything, verse one, and then he orders and arranges it for habitation in verse two through 25. We see patterns. So he's forming environments on days one to three and filling them in days four through six. So forming and filling, and those actions of forming and filling are very purposeful. They correspond to each other. So if you're looking in your notes, forming days one to three, filling days four to six. You see the correspondence? Day one, he forms the light. Day four, so the second set of three days, he fills the heavens with lights. Day two, he forms the sky and the seas. Day five, he fills the skies and the seas with birds and sea creatures. You see, forming and filling. Day three, forms the land. Day six, he fills the land with animals and humans. He's put plants and he's put fruit trees there, right? That's the forming. And then he puts plant eaters and fruit eaters there, right? So forming and filling. And as God does this, you know something, you notice something about the way that God speaks. There are patterns in the speech of God. God's speech involves command, fulfillment, and then approval. Command, fulfillment, and then approval. Again, seven, seven, and seven. Command, let there be. Seven, fulfillment, and there was. And approval, seven, and he saw it, and it was good. Friends, this is the origin story of all origin stories. This is the one true origin story of the world. If you're gonna live your life in a way that matches and lives with the grain of God's design, you need to know this origin story. This is how the world was designed to be the purpose of our lives. So what do we learn about our God? Three things, briefly, before we make our point. Number two, so first, God is light. We learn this about our God, God is light. Verse two, it says, darkness covered the surface of the waters. And what's the first thing that our God does? He hits the lights. He turns the lights on, right? God loves light. The apostle John writes about how God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, and the apostle, apostle John goes on to say, not only is God light, but we, his people, we are a people who walk in what? In the light. We're designed to live in the light. We walk in the light and not in darkness. So in the New Testament's picking up on all these early images and metaphors and it's making them sing for our lives about what is it that God has designed for us to do as his people, as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, you ask the question, you think about this, so how could there be light on day one when there aren't lights until day four? (laughs) You got light on day one, but you don't have a sun, you don't have a moon, and you don't have any stars until day four. Well, friend, just stop and realize, again, God has other light options besides the sun. God is light. He is light. Perhaps, perhaps this isn't stretching too far to say that maybe the Bible begins the way that it ends. How does the Bible end, Revelation 21, 23? The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb and by its light the nations will walk. (laughs) Is not God awesome? What an amazing, glorious creator. God is light, second, God has authority over scary things. (laughs) He has authority over scary things. So he's creating the expanse between the sky and the seas. He's separating the seas out, right? Well, the sea was the scariest place on earth in the ancient Near East. That was the, the place where unimaginably awesome, scary things happened. The sea was chaotic forces. The sea was the battleground of the gods. You don't get out there, right? You could get caught in the crossfire. You don't get out there in the sea. That's why the Israelites were landlubbers. They stayed on the ground as long as they possibly could. Maybe see a Galilee do some fishing, right, from the, from the dry dock, right? That, that's what they preferred to do. Chaotic forces happened out there. The disciples are caught in a storm, right? in in the pages of the gospels. And Jesus is there on the boat and he's asleep. He's not afraid of the water. He made the water. He's not afraid of the seas. He made this sea and all seas. So it makes sense that he's asleep and they wake him up and they say, we're gonna die. We're gonna die. And, And he wakes up and he says, peace be still and the waters stop. And that's when they get even more afraid because they say, who is this that he commands the winds and the waves. Well, do you know the origin story? The wind and the waves came at his command from the beginning. They've been answering him from the word go. He is in charge of the winds and the waves. He's not afraid, right? We don't command the winds and the waves, God does. Here's the beautiful thing. You know, we try to live our lives and we try to gain control, we try to get the planets to spin in in all the right orbits, right? And it's a fool's errand. It's futile. We don't command the winds and the waves. We are loved by the one who does. We are cared for by the one who commands the winds and the waves. And you think about the greatest winds and waves this world has ever seen. God in Christ has stilled the greatest storm imaginable the storm of God's holy justice and wrath against our sin and rebellion against God. And the scariest thing in the world has been defeated and answered by God, the Son. John Stott famously said, divine mercy triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. God has stilled the waters of his wrath through the cross of Christ. Friends, we have a gospel we, we celebrate this gospel, we sing ourselves deep into this gospel. Every single Sunday, every page of God's word, every story in God's word, points at, hints at, gestures in the direction of this grand central story. God is light. God has authority over scary things. And third, God brings new life. God brings new life. Look down at verse 11. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed bearing plants, according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. So, what's going on here? God puts plants and fruit trees in the ground, and they're yielding seed according to their kind. So they're gonna produce more fruit that is like them. Trees are gonna make more trees. They're gonna bear fruit that looks like them, each tree according to its own kind. So there's a pattern right here. In the first creation, there's this pattern. And the pattern is that life begets life. And this life begetting life pattern begins interestingly on day three, life begets life begets life on the third day of creation. It's interesting, you go over into the New Testament and Jesus is described in the New Testament as the first fruits of the new creation. So you've got an old world, you've got an old creation that follows certain patterns that were set in place by God and by His design. Then you've got a new creation that follows similar patterns, right? The first fruits of the new creation burst forth from the ground on what day? Day three, there's a story in the numbers. Jesus was planted in the ground, the seed that dies and he springs forth and brings life after his own resurrection kind. Second Corinthians chapter five, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The seeds of the risen Jesus Christ, the first fruits of the new creation, are bearing fruit. Where? All over this room. Seedlings of new creation. All over this room. After the original kind of the resurrected one. So days one to three, God's forming creation. Then we come to day four and it's time to fill it. So creation begun, creation prepared, and finally, creation inhabited. Creation inhabited, three wonderful truths about our God. First, God fills the world with light and life. He fills the world with light and life. What's he do here? God, he, he hangs the sun and the moon. And, and I love how it just says almost in a, by the way, in verse 16. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. Just pause there for a second. It's interesting. He doesn't just say the sun and the moon, right? We, we know those as the sun and the moon. Well, the words that would have been used for sun and moon, sun was the name of a God. It was the proper name of a God. Moon was the proper name of a God. And so God, this one scholar called this verse the demotion of the sun. He says, I made two lights, a big one and a little one. We'll just call them the big one and the small one. (laughs) The greater light and the lesser light. And, And you see the last words of verse 16, as well as the stars. By the way, the galaxy full of stars he made. Estimates are there are about one billion trillion stars in the observable universe, one billion trillion. You think about the scope of this. Antares is 550 light years away, so if that star disappeared today, we wouldn't know it until almost 2,600. massive scales, stars flung out into places people would never see, maybe still will never see. He's he's hung Mona Lisa's, he's hung masterpieces in places. We've still never seen them yet. He just was playing, he just was creating, because it was fun, because he enjoys making beautiful things and flinging them into space in purposeful ways. Our son is unimaginably, big, it's huge, right? But in the scale of the cosmos, it's tiny. I looked this up this week, VY Canis Majoris is, get this, three billion times the size of the sun. This is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. It is an awesome thing, God is an awesome, awesome God. Spoke every one of them into being by the word of his mouth. And listen to how the prophet Isaiah leverages the theology of God's creation of stars for the comfort of God's people. He says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? asks the Holy One, look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. And because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. One billion trillion stars, each named by God, formed by God, kept by God. He knows where they are, not one of them is missing. There have been times where I'm walking around the mall and I lose my kids and I've only got three. <laughs> my mom's done the same thing. I got lost in the French Quarter when I was a boy. I was like, mom, you've only got three of us, right? And then I grew up and I did the same thing over and over, right? God's got a billion trillion stars and he knows where they're all at. He never lost a single one of them. He calls them, brings them out by name and none of them is missing. We think God has lost track of our lives. He calls the stars by name. We think we can write a better story for our lives than the maker of the stars, the maker of Antares, the maker of the sun and you could write a better story? Good luck. The arrogance God fills the world with light and life. God is good and he makes beautiful things. God is good and he makes beautiful things. You know, that repeated phrase, and it was good. It's repeated throughout this text, right? Each day of his creative work, he looks and sees it and says, and it was good. The the word good there, it has a sense of being fitting for something. It has a sense of, being suitable for something or for someone, and we know what that thing is because it's the whole creation narrative is building, it is cumulative force building toward day what six, and who shows up on day six? We do, human beings, Adam and Eve, made in the image of God. He's saying it's good. It's good with each passing day. And every single day as God makes something and he steps back and He's essentially he's saying, that'll work. For whom? For us. It's it's basically God stepping back from the day that he made and all the things that he made in and he's saying, that'll dazzle. That will thrill them. They're gonna love this. You ever ever seen pictures of a, a man who proposes, and what does he do, right? He, he chooses the perfect spot in advance, and well before he goes and picks her up and takes her out for that special evening, he's already been to the spot, right? And he's mapped it out, and he chose the tree with that low-hanging branch because it's just, the ambiance is just right, and he lays all these vintage carpets out, right, because this is gonna be the spot where I take the knee and make the promise and ask her if she wants to share a future with me right here on this spot. And then, and then often, what does he do, he, he hangs lights. And so that tree branch is gonna serve, it's gonna be an obliging uh, light hanger and he hangs those lights on that branch. And before he goes and gets the girl and brings her back here later that evening, he backs away, doesn't he? He backs away and he says, that'll work, that'll dazzle. This will do the trick. Everything is perfect. Every light is in its perfect place. And then what happens? Then he goes and gets here, doesn't he? That's day six. God backs away each day and he says, that's perfect. That's perfect. And then he goes and he creates man in his image and he brings us to this place. And the story of the whole Bible begins here. God intends dwell with a people that he has made his own. That story starts right here. He intends to dwell with a people he has made his own and he wants a place to do that and this is gonna be the spot. You think about this for your own life. Why would we ever rebel against a God whose word brings things like this to life? Page one of Genesis. God, God did not make the world ugly, we did. He made the world beautiful and the world sings of the beauty of its maker, the glory and goodness of its maker. And God is remaking beautiful things in Jesus Christ for all those who repent and believe and trust in his cross. God begins that work of remaking the world beautiful. I'm reading a book right now called God of All Things, Rediscovering the Sacred in an Everyday World. It's a beautiful book and he's asking questions like, what does the existence of honey tell us about God? And fruit and donkeys and stones and galaxies. and He's just thinking about the world. What are we supposed to learn from the things that God has made? Here's one of the things that he, he writes. Theologians point out rightly that the language used for God in scripture is often anthropomorphic. And we should not take it literally. So in other words, God does not literally have a mighty arm. It's talking about God in terms of things that humans think of, arms and legs and so forth. But this is only half the story. And in some ways, the less important half. It might be more helpful to say that the world is theomorphic. Things take the form they do because they are created to reveal God. We describe God as the rock, not just because rocks exist and they provide a good picture of safety and stability. Rocks exist because God is the rock, the rock of our salvation. You see how he's turned it around Everything in creation is shouting. It was made to shout. It was made for that reason. You think about it, we have a world that's shouting, God is good. God can be trusted. God is beautiful. God takes the world glorious places if you trust him. You think about mountain peaks reaching to 29,000 feet in the air, lush valleys carpeted with every shade of green imaginable, oceans, teeming with marlin, a mega shoal of Atlantic heron to the tune of hundreds of millions of Atlantic herring every year. Porcupines and baby rhinos, thunderstorms, exploding stars, nuclear fusion, butterflies, fig trees, cows that are caught on YouTube that come to the fence when a little girl plays her accordion. That's the world that God has made, plants that grow toward the sun, companion animals like dogs. I think cats came with a fall. (laughs) Companion animals, right? All of it is, is shouting, God is good, God is beautiful, God is trusted, God is king. The hymn writer, summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars and their courses above do what? They join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. What are you gonna do with the God who reveals himself in creation? And this is what I hope we do. Our point of response is simply this. Give thanks to the Lord and trust Him with tomorrow. Give thanks to the Lord and trust Him with tomorrow. He is able, He is good. Why would we look at Him, the glorious one, and run the other way? Read page one, this is your origin story. You were designed to know this good God.